Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. So it has been a while since we've done a power hour. We've done some power surge. We've done a power hour live. Uh, It definitely has not been, and by it, I mean I, I have not been a very consistent host. Uh, Part of the reason is that we have interviewed so many good people on the show that, and on so many important topics that it was getting a little bit difficult to find guests. So that was, that was one thing. Another thing is I was working on the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which came out November 13th. I'm re- recording this on January 14th, so it's been a little over two months. The, the release has been really good. book has been really well received. Uh, definitely check it out at moralcaseforfossilfuels.com. I actually just recorded the audiobook of it I just finished that yesterday, so that'll be coming out on February 24th. So I'm not exactly sure what we'll be doing vis-a-vis Power Hour going forward. I would, uh, we're going to do something, but I'm not sure whether it'll be the live version, which, which I enjoy a lot, or the daily version, which I also enjoy, or the weekly slash monthly version. But I can tell you that we do have a show today, and it was partially motivated by the fact that I met someone and had a discussion, and it was super interesting, and it made me think, wow, I want to do a power hour on that, and that's that's always the best motivation. So the person's name is Rod Adams. He runs Atomic Insights. He's an expert on energy uh, in general, but also nuclear power in particular, and I'll tell you during the segment when I speak with him about our exchange and and what led to this podcast, but... I think there's just some fascinating material here, and, and we haven't done nearly as many shows on nuclear as I would like to, so I think this. I'm really glad we got to do this one, and I think it'll provoke a lot of thought and uh, maybe maybe some more research and commentary in the future. So stay tuned, and let me know what you think. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Rod Adams, publisher of Atomic Insights and the host and producer of The Atomic Show. Rod, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. So I got to be on The Atomic Show last week. It was really interesting. We were talking about, big surprise, uh, fossil fuels. And we had a little bit of a discussion about nuclear power, and I hope everyone listens to that episode of The Atomic Show before they listen to this episode, because it'll give you a little bit of context. Um, but we were talking about the, how long it takes to build nuclear power plants today. And you mentioned that very few people are familiar with what it used to take historically. So I thought, we should definitely have a show about this since I'm super pro-nuclear and I have the sense that it's been crippled in many ways. 
uh, but you know much more about this than I do. So let's start this way. Take us through the first nuclear reactors that could actually generate power. How long did those take to build? Well, uh, it's uh, in the U.S., the first commercial scale reactor was the shipping port reactor in Pennsylvania. Uh, the, that reactor was funded in early 1954, soon after President Eisenhower gave his Adams for Peace speech to the United Nations Assembly in December of 1953. That reactor was operating commercially by December of 1957. So think about that. The reactor was funded in 54, early 54. Just about four years later, a little bit less than four years later, it was operating commercially. It had been fully constructed, tested, and was online. And w did it actually produce power for people oh, in America? Oh, sure. Just, we're talking about a reactor that was producing 60 megawatts of electricity at the time it started up. So 60,000 kilowatts of electricity. It was not an enormous reactor, but it was not uh, terribly smaller than the uh, typical power plants that were being built uh, of other fuel sources at that time. At that time, maybe uh, 150 megawatts to 300 megawatts was not an uncommon size. So if it had been a bigger plant, how would that have affected the build time? Well, it probably would have stretched it out. The bigger your project, the longer it can take. But there were reactors soon after that. that uh, and one of the challenges that the nuclear industry uh, imposed upon itself was we didn't keep designs steady. Uh, there was a philosophy that bigger was better and that the, the way to reduce electrical power costs traditionally had been to scale up. And they, the economy of scale was considered to be the, uh, the, the thing that was going to make nuclear compete against coal and natural gas which, and residual oil, which were really the competitors at that time. Uh, so within about 10 years after the shipping port reactor was built, the reactors that were being offered to customers were in the neighborhood of 800 to 1,000 megawatts. So it was a pretty rapid scale-up in size. There were a few reactors that were built um, in, in more moderate sizes. There was a reactor at uh, Big Rock Point, the, the main, I mean, the Vermont Yankee, not sorry, correcting you, the Yankee Row nuclear plant was built in uh, Massachusetts, and that was about 150 megawatts. And that reactor only took about three to four years uh, of construction, a number of reactors built by Duke Energy that uh, in the 19, early 1970s that were constructed in about a five-year time schedule, uh, four to five years. So, you know, that was kind of steady um, at the, in the early stages of, of development. Well, that's, that's pretty amazing because, you know, those are modern power plant sizes, you know, 800 megawatts, a gigawatt. And sure. we're taught today that, well, 
you know, unfortunately we can't use nuclear because it takes 15 to 20 years to build and maybe one rationalization would be, well, those old plants, you know, those are, those are dangerous plants. So what, what's the actual status of them, safety-wise? Well, in the U.S., we've been operating commercial nuclear power plants since 1957. Uh, we've had exactly one major uh, event that has been described as a tragedy that, at Three Mile Island. The only real tragedy there was it uh, put nail into an already uh, dying industry of building new power plants. We essentially stopped building new nuclear plants in the U.S. about 1974-75. Uh, believe it or not, that was a re as a result of the Arab oil embargo of 1973. And it's a very complex story, but uh, the, when the price of oil quadrupled, we stopped building nuclear plants in the U.S. Um, but when Three Mile Island happened, it was a significant event. The uh, for various reasons, and I've written a lot about this. The uh, operators took action that resulted in damaging the core, the reactor core, and releasing a little bit of radioactivity to the environment. Not enough to hurt anyone. Uh, no one was injured uh, at Three Mile Island, but there was an awful lot of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth and improper uh, actions by a regulators, both at the state and federal level, that had no idea what to do in the event of such uh, a, a casualty. And uh, so otherwise, uh, commercial nuclear plants have an amazing safety record considering the large industrial enterprise that they are. Uh, we have not killed anyone in a nuclear event at in a U.S. nuclear reactor uh, commercial. There was one very small uh, military prototype reactor called the SL-1 which uh, exploded in 1962 or 3, early January 1962 or 3 uh, and killed its entire operating crew which was three people. In terms of, of cost, I've heard a lot of contradictory reports. What were the, you know, the, the costs of these nuclear power plants? And you hear different systems of accounting, but I guess the, the one that would make the most sense to me is just what does it cost per kilowatt hour over a given unit of time, given all of your you know, different costs? Then or now? Then. There were reactors that were completed uh, for on the order of five hundred dollars per kilowatt hour per kilowatt capacity, four to five hundred dollars per kilowatt capacity. Uh, right now, uh, the reactors under construction at Vogel and VC Summer will come in somewhere in the neighborhood of seven thousand dollars per. Uh, kilowatt capacity Whoa. when all is said and done. Uh, yeah, though I want to follow up on the, the tragedy of that that kind of thing. So, what four hundred five hundred kilowatt hour? How does that a uh, kilowatt? Excuse me. Uh, 
so how did how does what does that mean for given the cost of the nuclear fuel, which I take is pretty low over time because you need so little of it? What does that mean per uh, kilowatt hour over time? Well, one of the things that people don't understand very well, and part of it is because our our energy information agency doesn't publish the data uh, very readily. They don't. They have tables on the site that compare the cost of fuel on a per million BTU basis for coal and natural gas and residual oil and waste and I mean just about anything you can think of that you can burn. Uh, the EIA uh, has a table that compares the cost of those fuels and various grades of coal and whatnot on a on a heat for heat basis, which is really trying to get to where you're comparing uh, everything on, an, on, on a same common denominator. Unfortunately, they don't include nuclear fuel on that same scale, but it's available. The, the information is available. Commercial nuclear fuel, when you include all the costs of mining the uranium, uh, converting the uranium uh, so it can be enriched, enriching the uranium, fabricating the fuel pellets, fabricating the fuel assemblies, delivering it to the site, uh, operating it in the plant, storing it for many years afterwards in a, in a licensed waste uh, storage location, and then putting it into dry storage casts. We know what the cost of that whole fuel cycle is, and it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 cents per million BTU right now. And that's been a pretty steady cost uh, since about 1990. And uh, uh, Nuclear Energy Information, Nuclear Energy Institute publishes a graph that shows that fuel price versus the fuel prices for all other types of fuel. And natural gas right now, the cheap natural gas we have available, and I'm using air quotes here, cost about $4 a million BTU. Uh, oil, well, at, when it was $100 a barrel, it was on the order of $15 a million BTU. So I guess now it's fallen down to about 7 or $8 a million BTU. Uh, I, have to, I haven't run the numbers at the $55 range. I used to have that in my head, but I don't right now. Um, so you can see that the price of commercial nuclear fuel is very low and the overall production cost of electricity from our existing nuclear plants is somewhere on the order of 2 to 2.3 cents per kilowatt hour. It's difficult to say what the all-in cost is when the capital costs have varied tremendously from plant to plant. Um, but the, the most economical nuclear plants operating today have an all-in cost of somewhere in the neighborhood of three cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, the most expensive have an all-in cost maybe on the order of nine cents a kilowatt hour if you include capital cost. So what's going wrong when you hear environmentalists say, oh, it's actually way more than that per well, kilowatt hour? The, the, the challenge 
is that if you slow down any major construction project, no matter what you're building, if you're building a football stadium, a road, uh, uh, a series of tunnels in, Balt- in uh, Boston, you can add a tremendous amount of cost simply by making it take longer. Uh, it, it's not just interest costs. It's rental costs on all your heavy cranes. It's uh, the fact that you have to have a, a certain site manning all the time, even if they're twiddling their thumbs waiting for somebody to make an approval on the next thing they do. You know, anybody who's built a house understands that it's very important to keep a schedule moving so that you don't have delays and you don't have the guy who's putting in the, the toilet waiting for the guy who's got to put the plumbing in first. And so you don't have the whole crew waiting until the inspector comes in and signs off on the last thing that was was done, maybe the electrical wiring before they seal up the walls. So, you know, the schedules are important. And uh, because of challenges, because of uh, the, the lengthy approval process, uh, the, the interventions that can occur throughout the process, and, and it's not that, that I'm advocating that the nuclear industry needs to be less regulated. I'm just saying that there's a huge ability to add cost to something whenever you let anybody come in and say, hey, I don't like the way this guy's doing his job. Let's stop and, and have a, a hearing and get everybody to testify. And and while we're doing all this stuff, the guys are over there waiting for us to get moving. And so, you know, adding time adds money, adds cost. And that's what essentially happened to the first atomic age. And, and you're quite a bit younger than I am. I was in college in 19, well, I graduated in 81. When I graduated, I, I remember sitting in my college dorm room calculating how much money I could make by putting, just taking cash that I had and putting it into a CD at 20% interest. That's what kind of interest rates we were dealing with at this very time that many delays were being inserted. And, and so many of the nuclear plants that came in with costs in the order of four billion dollars a plant uh if you do the the uh, accounting i'm trying to make remember what the word is for going back and and dredging up old accounting but it's a uh, forensic accounting that's it you do the forensic accounting you find out that about two-thirds of that cost was strictly interest on the borrowed money while people were waiting to get approvals to do things yeah, it's it's just you know the the numbers you were talking about before you know four hundred five hundred dollars to five hundred dollars per kilowatt versus seven thousand. What other that that should just be such a signal to everyone that something has gone drastically wrong, because what other field do we are we content with a ten times price increase, given the general evolution of of technology, so. Yeah, it's just it's horrific. Well, one of the challenges that we have is that uh, there is a a philosophy that 
purports to be scientifically based, but it's not. Uh, and I'm working on some some uh, documents and and maybe writing a book about how we got to where we are in terms of uh, our understanding of what radiation does to people. Um, but there's a general f- assumption that any dose of radiation, all the way down to the to a single gamma ray, uh, could cause some sort of damage, and that you have to keep all doses as low as reasonably achievable. That's the the philosophy that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has, and reasonable to a regulator is generally not reasonable to you or I. Um, you know, the, the, they have no real understanding of costs when they uh, impose an additional requirement to keep uh, radiation doses as low as reasonable achievable. And it's not even keeping real radiation doses as low as reasonable achievable. It's, a keeping, it's keeping projected, in the worst case accident, radiation doses as low as reasonably achievable. And when you have that feeling that, that all radiation is dangerous, you end up uh, imposing an awful lot of, of uh, layers that are not necessary, uh, additional reviews that are not necessary, uh, uh, verification of, of codes that make it so that because it's so painful to go through a verification process, we're actually still using computer codes that were written 30 years ago. Uh, because they've been verified, uh, and it's too hard or too expensive to go through the process again. So we've imposed an awful lot, and nuclear engineers, for the most part, uh, have never really been asked, design us the most cost-effective safe plant you can do. They simply say, they've been told, make it safer and I was involved in a design project for a while I was a member of a design team for a new reactor from uh, 2010 to 2013 and uh, you know we were excited about making things 10 times safer than they were and I said well how do we how do we justify spending money to kill less than zero people (laughs) over a 50-year period I mean, I. Yeah, and of course, you're the those that decision to add on a bunch of stuff that will make it much more expensive will kill people through lack of energy. Absolutely, uh, and you know some of the things that we we've been doing to ourselves and um, many of the there's some really exciting projects out there, by the way, and, and I I don't want to let people even for a minute believe that we're standing still because we've got a, an exciting array of entrepreneurial people out there trying to figure out how they can uh, get approval to build some some ideas that would do a great deal to reduce the cost of uh, building the systems and proving that they're adequately safe if we can figure out how to get the regulators to understand how to review them. Um, But, you know, if you're not focused on 
keeping costs low uh, and you're instead saying, well, we've got this beautiful, safe plant, but in order to make the public accept it better, let's make it even safer by burying the whole thing underground. And uh, that may sound interesting until you start to really understand how much it costs to excavate uh, a, a hole that's 150 feet deep and big enough to put an entire uh, reactor plant in it. And then you think about, well, how, once you bury it, you say, well, now it's out of sight and we're, we're all safe. And then you ask, well, how are you going to inspect the walls once it's buried? How are you going to get down and fix something that's, that's at the bottom of the plant? How are you going to access it to, to replace the parts? And, um, you know, the, the idea that, it, that burying is good, you know, came from, heck, it came from Dr. Strangelove himself. <laughs> uh, Edward Teller was the guy who advocating burying reactors, um, which is, to me, a, a dumb idea. Um, you know, it's, it's expensive, and it doesn't add anything to safety. I mean, this, the whole focus on safety uh, as, as this unlimited virtue reminds me of how fossil fuels are dealt with, how energy is dealt with more broadly, that, that the goal should be, quote, clean energy, which this idea is, well, the energy has no risks or side effects, and that's what that's all we should be thinking about. But the real thing with energy is, I think of it more in terms of, is it healthy? Which means, does it give you the most positive for the least negative? Because if something is perfectly clean, or even if solar and wind were, which they're not, where does that get you if you can't heat your home? Or if you can't air condition your home? Or if billions of people can't do it because the stuff is too expensive and too unreliable? There's just so little positive focus on let's get the highest caliber, most efficient energy source in the world. And it seems like nuclear has the potential to be that, but it's, it's you know, being demonized by, these, by the idea that it's unsafe, even though it's already by far the safest. I uh, agree with you. Uh, there's very few things that are less healthy for people than to live in a world without sufficient energy. The life expectancy of, of people who uh, end up heating their homes by burning dung inside uh, in the Pashmirga uh, areas of Pakistan um, is on the order of 40 to 45 years. Uh, it's, it's a terrible thing to impose on people uh, ener energy poverty. Um, you know, it Abundant energy is is a healthy thing by itself. Even in the case w uh, of Great Britain, life expectancies improved when people were burning coal instead of either freezing or burning a moderate amount of wood that they could uh, somehow maybe sneak out of the uh, clutches of the landowners. Um, so... In the industrial era, they became healthier, even though the air was was dirtier. I'm not advocating for dirty air. I like clean air, and I think it's it is important to to do things as cleanly as possible. I mean, I I have jogged along city streets in the United States where we all have catalytic converters on our car, 
and done the same jogging in Bahrain uh, and found that I, I had a hard time breathing after about three or four miles. Uh, the air there was just not as healthy as it is um, where we use the best available technology to knock out as much pollution as possible. Yeah, just one more thought on this almost war on waste, or this idea that waste is, is inherently bad. I mean, waste is a fact of life. I mean, we can we can minimize it in certain ways, or we can take actions to to you know turn it into something benign. Uh, but I, it, what my strong belief, just based on people not focusing on the big picture of what energy is best for human life, and instead focusing on the alleged amount of waste, is that really what's going on is this idea we we talked about last week of minimizing impact as the ideal. So waste is not bad because it's necessarily hurting human life, because the energy is helping human life so much it, it just completely offsets and counteracts the waste in most cases, certainly in America. But it, it's just about, we shouldn't be doing anything to impact anything. And waste is just a smokescreen, no pun intended, to get people, <laughs> you know, to get people um, to think that, oh yeah, the reason we don't like nuclear is because something could go wrong. Or the reason we don't like fossil fuels is because there's some emissions in some contexts, and yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that the America that I live in uh, celebrates fossil fuels um, and, and and enjoys uh, what fossil fuels brings to them. I, I have not spent much time as a city dweller. Matter of fact, I've worked in cities, but I've always lived in the suburbs where people drive. Uh, minivans and and SUVs and and fill up you know throw everything in the back and take their kids to the parks and and do carpools and get get their kids to sporting events and you know th that's been my life uh, I've have a lot of good friends who are water skiers and you know we we burn fossil fuels just for fun to go fast in a boat um, so you know, we, we understand that, and I think the vast majority of Americans uh, do. They recognize that having warm homes and sufficient size homes and all of those things are, are beneficial. On the other hand, uh, I, I do have to say that it, it, it has always been a, a conversation among friends and the world, we have a hard time understanding why people are so worried about reusable nuclear fuel and call it the waste problem that we haven't figured out how to solve. Um, there isn't a very large problem. If you took all of the spent nuclear fuel, which I like to call reusable nuclear fuel, and uh, put it in a single location, uh, that location would be about the size of an NFL football field. Uh, and that would—that's if you didn't put it in. And if you put it in licensed containers, you could certainly store all of it on a single site that was smaller than the, an NFL football field and its parking lot, surrounded by all the security you can imagine. You could put that all of the waste we ever produced right there. Uh, right now, all of the uh, used nuclear fuel that the U.S. Navy has ever used, and we started using nuclear-powered submarines 
in January of 1955, all the fuel that we've ever used is in a single building in the Idaho desert. It's not very big. Uh, it's, it's simply a very small and manageable problem. It has been turned into what I call the effort to constipate the nuclear industry uh, by saying we don't know what to do with the back-end stuff. But we do, and we have many options. There are, there are ways to recycle that material into a number of different uh, fuel products. There are, some other, there are other parts of that fuel that are valuable, unique isotopes that could be used for all kinds of, of wonderful products. Um, there are uh, fuel cycles that reduce the waste by or that reduce the, the volume of the waste by a factor of four to ten. In some cases, there are people that say they can reduce the, the volume by a factor of a hundred. Uh, and, but again, it's already a small volume. And it, yes, the material itself is, is dangerous if you approach it without shielding or you try to eat it. I just recommend people don't approach it without <laughs> shielding and don't eat it. Uh, nobody, and I've, I've been looking for this a story uh, for 20 years. I have not yet found a single story of someone who has been harmed in any way by exposure to spent nuclear fuel, the waste product that comes out. And again, the waste product is very small because we don't burn much fuel. Nuclear is one to two million times as concentrated as oil, which is the best available fossil fuel in terms of energy density. I've got a couple of pictures of me on the web holding up a tiny fuel pellet uh, that is a simulated fuel pellet. It represents a typical light water reactor fuel pellet, but the American Nuclear Society puts out cards with these fuel pellets on it that shows that that fuel pellet, which can hold between my thumb and my forefinger, contains as much energy as 147 gallons of oil or a ton of coal or 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas Many people don't know what a 1,000 cubic, but 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas is, is a three-bedroom house full of natural gas, a 1,700-square-foot house. That's 17,000 cubic feet. So, where, where do I get one of those cards? I can send you one. Or right. the American Nuclear Society has, uh, has I, think that, I think that it's available to the public to, to order the cards, but I've got a bunch of them hanging around here. All right, in the, the house. The perks of being a podcaster. Yes. Well, the perks of being a member of the American Nuclear Society. No, no, I mean but, me. Oh, okay. I'll <laughs> send you a card. Well, just just as the perks of knowing Atomic Rod Adams. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> one of per, perk number twenty, I'm sure at this point. So, yeah. Now, yeah, those I, I think those are those are terrific visuals, and. It's funny because we've had a couple of shows on, on nuclear and just debunking all of the the safety hysteria. So I'm I'm that that's so necessary, but I'm almost bored by that issue because if you understand the basic technologies involved, it's this is obviously what you would want next to your house versus any other kind of power plant. Um, you know, I mean, imagine you have a dam next to your house that you know could theoretically burst. 
Um, even yeah. if you have a, I have a line that I use and people say, well, Alex, I know you say nuclear is safe or is the safest, but where do you really live next to a nuclear power plant? And I said, well, you know, I already live next to something which is much more dangerous than a nuclear power plant, which is a street. <laughs> well, my answer to him is, yes, I've spent months at a time within 200 feet of an operating nuclear reactor sealed up inside a tiny uh, steel tube full of people. Um, and we had that reactor operating next to us, and none of us worried about the reactor. We kind of worried about the high-pressure water that was on the outside of the submarine, but the <laughs> reactor was not our, our big concern. It was a good shipmate. So, yeah, you know, that I when I left the Navy the first time, I started a small company because I thought that I had figured out a way to reduce the cost of uh, nuclear power plants to the point where they could compete against anything. Uh, because as, as I tell people, you know, a lot of um, people that don't like nuclear have said things like, well, it's just an expensive way to boil water. And I like to turn that around and say, you're right, it is just a heat source. But heat sources is what we've always used to convert energy in the chemical or nuclear into usable either motive power or electricity. We convert heat into power using standard heat engines. And nuclear heat conversion into power is the same ma machines as we've used for uh, oil to power. It, except you can't really burn, you can't really fission inside an internal combustion engine, but you can uh, do it inside a steam turbine, which what we have typically done. But in addition, you can heat a gas and expand it through a turbine, cool the gas and compress the gas and do it again, uh, using exactly the same machines as what makes natural gas power plants so inexpensive to build, the Braden Cycle gas turbine. So I started a company in 1993 because I thought that I had the way to build small reactors uh, economically. Well, it turned out that there was a lot of hurdles that I didn't know about. After about three or four years, we put that company to sleep, and I eventually you know, completely gave up on the company in 2010. But the idea was you could reduce the cost by using the same machinery. And if you don't have to do everything special, um, and, and there's, there's still a, a viable way to, to go. And when I was doing that, I envisioned small enough atomic gas turbines to have them in neighborhoods as the local power plant. And maybe even in people's basements if they had a big enough basement. Well, I, I would want one in my basement just for symbolic reasons. <laughs> well, the good thing about having that in your basement is it's got a a pretty good amount of uh, waste heat that could be reused for other things. But, of course, you're a Southern California guy, so you don't worry about that stuff so much. No, we're, uh, we're having a nice, sunny, late December day. <laughs> well, it's not bad. I mean, uh, the weather's not, not bad here. I, I'm not a – I'm in the temperate uh, south-central Virginia. But 
there are places in this country where it gets mighty cold in the wintertime. And unfortunately, one of them, the state of Vermont, has determined that they are going to shut down their single operating nuclear plant, which for the last 40 years has generated about 75% as much electricity as the whole state uses every year. Um, but they decided that they don't like it for some reason. Yeah, and just these same, you know, of course we have Bill McKibben, the sort of most public Vermonter in this debate, and just that they claim that CO2 is a crisis and they've got this super cheap non-CO2 emitting plant that they feel compelled to destroy. Right. It's already built. I mean, McKibben will say he doesn't like new nuclear because it's too expensive. So you ask him, so Bill, what did you do to convince your neighbors that they should at least leave Vermont Yankee alone and not try to shut it down 20 years early? And now they're, of course, worried, well, how are we going to pay for the decommissioning? Well, if the plant would have generated revenue for another 20 years, that would have been a non-issue. And that may have given enough time for people to say, you know, this plant's a really nice thing here and that the best available use, the highest and best use for the site where that plant is, is to build another plant. Sure, you know, nuclear plants wear out eventually, um, although they can be uh, refurbished a far longer, I mean, if people who think of a 40-year-old nuclear plant as being aged don't understand that we operated the USS Enterprise, the very first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, for 50 years. And an aircraft carrier goes through a heck of a lot more wear and tear than a shore-based nuclear plant that operates at mostly steady-state power levels all the time. And the, the amount of wear and tear from an engineering point of view on a ship is far greater than what you get in a shore-based power plant. Yeah, this is all just, I mean, I love the technology. It really bothers me. The I can't imagine what it's like for you, but just, just seeing, seeing just the potential just lying there unused. And that, that leads me to the, the final thing I want to discuss, which is just policy-wise, what, what could be, like, let's say we, we could persuade anyone of anything what are the policies that will get us quickly to where we can start building, you know, cheap nuclear plants? You know, I've thought about that a lot. And I'm, I'm somewhat of a political realist. I know that we're not going to change everything overnight. <clears throat> but one of the, the, the easiest, cheapest, and simplest policies that we could have is to tell the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that they should enable nuclear rather than focus solely on nuclear safety. The NRC has a mission statement, which I believe, if you read that mission statement carefully, it says that the NRC's job is to regulate radioactive material to improve public health and safety, contribute to the common defense, and make us a more secure nation. Now that means that they should regulate it properly. 
They should keep it safe so that it is well used, so it is more readily used. Not approach every review is if this particular item is perfectly safe. It's is this item adequately safe and what can I do to improve the process so that it lowers the cost and so that people will spend, will invest more into this technology rather than being seen as a roadblock. I spent a decade making presentations to investors about Adam's atomic engines. And I thought there was a pretty darn good design. And many of my colleagues and, and reviewers thought, hey, this is great. But the problem was every time I got to the end of my presentation and they said, well, how are we going to get permission from the NRC to, to build this? I had to say, I don't know. And how much is it going to cost? And I had to say, I don't know. And of course, with items like that, you simply, and I couldn't, I couldn't baffle anybody with, with baloney because I, this is not the way I am. I'm a, I, I have a fairly strong sense of personal integrity. I couldn't tell them that there was an easy path. I couldn't say that I knew how long it would take or how much it would cost. And oh, by the way, as a gift of David Stockman and Ronald Reagan, um, who decided that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission needed to be a user fee based organization, vice paid for out of the general revenue funds, all licensed applicants have to pay for all of the NRC uh, professional staff hours at the rate of $279 per professional staff hour. And I've got some friends that are going through the process of getting their licenses reviewed right now. And when they go to the NRC just to talk and try to explain their new technologies and their new concepts so that the NRC can understand how to regulate them, they'll go and have a meeting with 20 NRC people that last for two full days. Run the numbers in your head. 20 times 279 times 8 times 2. That's a big number for holding an in informational meeting with the government to teach them how to regulate you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just this is this is but the. It is a solvable problem. It is a so we we know how to build these things. We know how to make them safe. We've got and we've got in the U.S. the world's biggest installed base of knowledgeable operators of people who understand how to maintain and and keep large complex nuclear steam plants operating well and safely. We've got a bunch of really bright young entrepreneurial people that want to, to you know, and I know that, that many people in your audience say, yeah, carbon, but, you know, there is a problem when you're dumping 30 billion tons of something into the air that doesn't go away. Nuclear doesn't do that. It is clean enough to run inside a sealed submarine. And by the way, we do produce, we do build nuclear plants on a schedule these days, and build them at, at a regularly per, uh, planned cost, and make them go. Uh, and, and and that we do that at uh, Newport News Naval Shipyard, or I'm sorry, Huntington uh, Industries Incorporated uh, Shipyard, and 
and we build uh, those plants on schedule and on budget um, for submarines. We could do it today if the government would say, hey, Navy, we know that you've always thought your engines are classified, but let's uh, declassify them and make them commercial. All right. Well, if people want to know my view on whether we should classify increasing atmospheric CO2 as dumping, uh, they can read moral case for fossil fuels. But as to the rest of it, uh, I definitely agree. And I think this is uh, an important cause to pursue because en energy is so important for human life. And this is just such a, uh, a potent form of energy. And, and to use a line from the solar and wind advocates or the fossil fuel opponents, they'll say, well, we have the technology, by which they mean they can make something that works at a very, very high cost. But with nuclear, we do, in fact, have the technology. We can make something that works at a low cost. And so that, that needs to happen. And I think that your work is you know, as good and as important as anyone's out there on this topic. So where can people find out more about it? All right, uh, atomicinsights.com. Uh, we've been on the web now since 1995, uh, various formats, but uh, so that's got the about 3,000 uh, blog posts have been published since 1995, um, fairly decent categories and those kind of things in our archives, so you can find it, do searches there. They'll also do a podcast called The Atomic Show, which is available on iTunes uh, and other uh, RSS feeds. Uh, there, there's some links to that. Uh, the, the shows are actually uh, posted at the same URL. Uh, so, and if you go to the archive section, just look under podcasts, and you'll find all those shows. I think we've done about. I think you were number two hundred and ten. And so there's there's information out there. Uh, I'm I'm on Twitter at at Atomic Rod, um, and uh, yeah, look me up. I and I, there's lots of people out there. I've got a pretty decent uh, link blog blog roll on my site. So learn more. Open your eyes. Question. Uh, don't believe it when people say things are just going to take too long and cost too much. Because I agree. Right now, without changing anything, they do take too long. They do cost too much. But we have the ability to change that, and most of it is by strokes of pens, uh, which is a heck of a lot easier than trying to tell the wind when it should blow and tell the sun when it should shine. Because I'm just not God. There you go. Yeah, we just have to take a bunch of irrational stuff away, which is hard, but, but definitely worth doing. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you one more word that you should put in your vocabulary. Okay. Unreliables. Oh, I I'm use that. I use I'm that. relabeling the uh I the use renewables. that all the time. Good. Good. And I want to keep that word spreading cuz there's just no you can't make a reliable system out of unreliables. It just does not work. Yeah, and it really captures the essence of the moon like renewable, which is almost meaningless. Yeah. All right, Rod. Great stuff. Thanks for being on the show. All right. Thank you, Alex. Thanks again to Rod Adams for coming on the show. I think we covered just about everything I wanted to on the show. 
for me, this is a topic that I really want to research more now. A lot of the stuff that Rod said, I had never heard, or I had never heard the particular figures. It can be tricky estimating these economic things from the past, but I think he made some really good points that I've never heard an answer to. And to the extent he's right, it's, it's very exciting because that means not only do we have all this potential in the fossil fuel energy realm, but there's also a lot more potential than we think to quickly increase our use of cheap, plentiful, reliable, and extremely safe nuclear power. And that's that's just great, because as soon as you get to rapid innovation in that space, there's all sorts of exciting possibilities from the fact that you're dealing with such a, such a small and concentrated amount of raw material. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, I haven't said this in a while, any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to check out moralcaseforfossilfuels.com to get the book, to buy it in bulk. Uh, we have alexepstein.com. It's been up for a while, but it, it, got, it got revised. There's a lot of new content there, so check that out. It'll include links to my Forbes columns, which I've been doing more regularly. The last column, as of now, has almost 100,000 views in the last week. It's about the 97% of climate scientists agree fallacy. So definitely check that out. Um, but yeah, I'd say if, yeah, if you like this show, if you like the content, definitely check out the book. I, can, I really just read it for the first time all the way through in its final form when I was recording the audiobook, and it, it was a little bit surreal because it was as if I was reading someone else's book in, in a certain sense, not because it was ghostwritten, it wasn't, uh, but just because I hadn't, I hadn't been immersed in it uh, for many months, and as I as I was listening to it, I thought honestly, this is this is good. People should really read this. It, it clarifies a lot that I don't think is clarified in other places. So take that for what it's worth. And besides that, I will talk to everyone next time. I'm not sure when that will be, but if you have any suggestions, Alex at industrialprogress.net. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.